What's up, you guys? This is your girl, Essence, and you're riding the wave of Wisdom in Red, where we are living life through the words and spirit of Christ. Um, Just wanted to talk with you guys today about something that I've actually been meaning to talk to you all about for a while um, to put in the podcast list, uh, you know, that anybody can reference back to. But I have been grieving about this stuff so much that I just couldn't even bring myself to do an episode on it because I do not want to be, you know, I just didn't want to bring, I didn't want to make that episode emotional. And, um, and it, which is weird because I'm a little emotional this evening finding out about if you guys ever listen to or know of the rap culture, then you've probably heard of Nipsey Hussle who passed away this evening or yesterday because it's early in the morning the next day now. But uh, Nipsey Hussle had really turned over a new leaf, had really changed his life. Um, and I was really interested in seeing which direction he was going to continue to flow in. Um, he had really he'd become an amazing, very savvy businessman and, um, you know, just his entrepreneurs, his entrepreneurial skills were so unexpected from him that it was just such a ray of hope. And, you know, he's straight from, you know, South LA, um, you know, drug life, drug culture, gang culture, all of those things. And to see him flip his life was really magnificent in the sense of it made me hope and wonder for more. And I really prayed for him and his family, you know, like his girl, Lauren London, and was just kind of just hoping to really see something from them um, in hopes maybe even of salvation. But it was just really wonderful just to see how much he had grown and come forth in just a decade. Because if you compare how he was just like a decade ago, you'd be like, ooh, goodness, you know, maybe not even that long ago. Um, so you just saw a lot of growth in him. And then to know that his life was taken earlier, you know, he was, he was gunned down, shot six times in front of his plaza that he had just taken ownership of recently, him and a business partner. Um, and, he, and, he, and it was in front of his store, one of his stores in the plaza. Um, Anyhow, that had me a little sad tonight. So I kind of have been a little emotional, but I'm not trying to bring an emotional um, viewpoint on this topic of comparing, of how people compare, of how one, how people walk away from the church, from God, from Christ, um, but because due to basic comparisons and not knowing how to defend the Bible and things like that. But specifically, what I'm going to go over is um, the, you know, like the Horace comparisons and things like that. And, and like the Enuma Elish, um, you know, stories that deter people from believing the Bible. Because you have people talking about how, um, uh, you know, the Bible and all of that, it doesn't predate certain things. Even though the biblical stories predate many ancient Egyptian writings and Babylonian writings, um, people are complaining because they say, well, I don't find those and they don't understand a lot of oral culture. Um, and so when they go and see Egypt or they have these um, different people, these Kemetans or whoever telling them about their faith, that they think they're being told about their faith, they hear things new and different and it overwhelms them as opposed to driving them to uh, study more on their own. Um, so 
I'm just gonna the the thing I want to I want to start off by reading Second Peter one. Um, I'm gonna read. I'm actually I'm gonna read down quite a ways, um, probably to about verse sixteen or seventeen. So I really hope that you guys have an ear this evening or morning, whenever you guys. Um, it's morning to me, um, but it's still really I don't know late morning kind of moment <laughs> time that I'm in right now. Um, so. Um, second Peter one, Simeon, Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the, by the righteousness of our God and savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus, our Lord, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us his precious and very prom- very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire for this very reason Make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue. He's saying that you have to, this is to feed your faith. Please listen to this part because what a lot of believers are not doing is saying that we believe and we shout for Christ and we proclaim Christ or we'll put Christian on a survey somewhere. But he says this because he's talking about escaping corruption that's in the world because of sinful desires. We're turned away from our own sinful desires, right? The things that sound better to us and itch our ears. But listen to this. He says, before that reason, do this, make every effort to supplement your faith. You have to feed your faith, nurture it. He says with virtue and with virtue knowledge, because see a lot of believers don't have knowledge. They don't try to get any knowledge. Well, I got everything I get from the Bible and da, 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 but ain't nobody really reading the Bible. So it says with knowledge and knowledge with self-control. So with that knowledge that you get, you don't have to be so emotional. You don't have to be emotionally driven or, you know, you don't have to be um, as, as you can, you know why you're controlling these desires. You know how to control these desires. Um, And he says, so um, with, uh, so and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness. That, that self-control helps you to stay focused and stay steady in the faith. And it says, with and steadfastness with godliness. And that thing turns into that righteousness. That is the righteousness of God that is helping you to, to, to do all of those things, to have the virtue, have the knowledge, have the self-control, and gain the steadfastness because of that godliness. It is with godliness and with godliness, brotherly affection. The godliness that we have within us that is truly rooted and has been developed and nurtured within us due to our faith being strengthened. We now can extend that out. He says with brotherly affection, he says and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love and love you know, love, you know, God is love according to the scriptures. So he says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, so we increase in virtue, we increase in knowledge, we increase in self-control, we increase in steadfastness and in godliness and brotherly affection and love. 
because this, these are our processes, you know what I mean? So we should be increasing in these things. He said, then they will keep you from becoming what? Ineffective or unfruitful in what? Unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's so funny that he said that because the first, the first part of doctrine that I noticed that leaves from a believer is about Jesus. Always. It has never, ever failed. <laughs> Always Jesus. So he says, for if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they will keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he, uh, that he is blind, having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. I'm going to read that one more time. When you have been unfruitful and ineffective in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, then when you lack those qualities, it makes you nearsighted and blind and forgetful about him who cleansed you from your former sins. Therefore, brothers, he says, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fail. The qualities that I've mentioned above. For in this way, there will be, they, um, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ is the very... So don't you find it funny that the entrance is into the eternal kingdom of Christ Jesus, of the Savior and Lord. So if that's the first thing attacked, then that is the number one. You've closed that entrance right there. You, you shut that entrance down. So I'm saying these things because I'm going to go over this stuff pretty briefly, just maybe in the next 20 or 30 minutes. Um, he says, then uh, he says, Therefore, I intend always to remind you of these qualities, um, though you know them and are established in the truth that you have. I think it right as long as I am in the body to stir you up by way of reminder. So this is kind of what I'm doing by reading this. I was really led to this uh, to these verses to read to you guys tonight or this morning. My gosh, it's just dark outside still. Um, <laughs> So, um, since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, this is Peter talking about him being dead in a little bit. Um, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, cause he had prophesied about G uh, Peter's death. So he says, and I will make every effort so that after my departure, you may be able at any time to recall these things. Now listen to this. He says for, and this is Peter. Now keep in mind, he's headed to death. And so these, you could look at Peter kind of giving his last words here and <laughs> not necessarily, but this is powerful. He knows that he is headed for death. And in this, this is what he wants to, he has put his whole life on the line, knowing that he was going to, cause he dies not nicely. So he says, for we did not, he said, I want you to recall these things. I want you to recall these things because we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we were made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. 
For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, when he said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy, excuse me, on the holy mountain. So they were there. They heard the voice of the most high. They heard, excuse me, as he says, by him, uh, by, by the majestic glory saying, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased talking about Christ Jesus. So they were there. And so he says, and, and we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed to you, excuse me, to which you will, um, do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. So if you are discarding this stuff, if when these believers turn and they discard all that they've known, they are discard, they're throwing the lamp out. And in, in, in the word talks about how the evil, you know, the, the evildoer, how they love the dark. And so you begin to love the dark. You begin to think that that's more where you belong. Anyway, he says, so... You'll do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts, knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So, and he talks about, he says, but he says, but. False prophets also rose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who brought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality because of them. The way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words and their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. And he says, for if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment. If he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly, if by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction making them an example of what's going to happen to the ungodly. And if he rescued righteous lot, greatly distressed by the sensual conduct of the wicked, for uh, as that righteous man lived among them day after day, he was tormenting his righteous soul over their lawless deeds that he saw and heard. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. And especially those who indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. So in other words, he was just like, look, we didn't make the, we didn't make those stories up. We were actually there. We were eyewitnesses. And that's why we've been losing our lives. <laughs> they have been, I'm about to die because of this stuff. Cause we were there. And so when people just sit up there and try to tell you, Oh, that stuff ain't real. The you know, Bible's written by the white man. And it's so funny because I tell this to people. If the Bible was written by the white man, all you need to do is go and pick you up the slave's Bible. When you go and read that slave's Bible, it ain't much to read. 
Do you know why? Because they, they, in order for the so-called white man, excuse me, not so-called, but in order, in order for the white man at that time to use it to slave break before they can use it to slave break people, they had to remove 34 books from the Bible. Then the, the books that they did keep, they removed most of the chapters and verses from those that they even left in there. So it really wasn't much of a Bible no more. By the time they were trying to use it to brainwash black folks, they basically had just taken it and plagiarized it uh, for how they, but excuse me, they didn't even plagiarize it. Excuse me. They just took it and they really just rearranged it. They just took it for their own good and they they misrepresented the scriptures. But see, what's funny is because you had people like Nat Turner who had the real Bible. And Nat Turner knew what the Bible said. Nat Turner knew it actually said you you kill them kidnappers that that are made into um, that that take people and make them into slaves. Whether they're the kidnappers themselves or the people caught with the slaves, you kill them. <laughs> and of course, you had the Nat Turner rebellion. And this man was a preacher. You know, after Nat Turner had uh, preached the gospel, you know, he was actually preaching to these folks. And after his rebellion, you know, they changed everything. That's when you could no longer, blacks could no longer congregate together without a white person. So the Bible was actually powerful. It empowered people. It empowered them to rise up. It empowered them to see who they actually were. They were actually able to compare themselves and say, whoa, this is what God really has. He don't mean this for this is evil what they're doing. So they said, okay, we can't be having that over in the West Indies. So they literally had to remove half the Bible, over half the Bible, over, well over half the Bible before they could even use it on black people as a, as a weapon, improperly as a weapon. So when people try to tell you it's a white man's religion, they don't know anything about the Bible. They really don't. They don't even understand that most of the folks in the doggone Bible were black people, people of color. That the, that the gospel was taken to the Gentile. And I know, you know, there are uh, different arguments about who the Gentile is, whether it's just anybody but a Jew or if it's not the Hamite. It's just um, because the Bible presents it in Genesis as only the descendants of Japheth, Japheth, um, basically like the Euro, the, the European, basically, um, them being, uh, uh, Japheth and them being, uh, the ones who are the only ones called the Gentile actually in the, in the book of Genesis. Um, when he talks about him, when he breaks down Shem, Ham and, and Japheth, um, noticing that Ham was never called the Gentile in those times. So I don't know how you view all of that, but <laughs> either way, this is beside the point. I want y'all to understand that many people are walking away because they have not done their own research in the word. They just, they were just so happy and snug. Um, and now we're in this era of waking up and being shaken up and questioning everything that we thought that we knew. But I'm going to tell you, Peter, so I go back to telling you this. Peter said, look, we did not teach y'all and give to y'all and report to y'all lies because we actually lived it. And I'm about to lose my life due to it. So keep that in mind. So one of the things that we always see 
I think uh, Egypt is beautiful. I've never been there, but I'm sure it's really gorgeous. I think other religions are so beautiful. Um, other cultures are really amazing, beautiful people, um, beautiful uh, that we all have this freedom um, to be in different places, different processes, different experiences and whatnot. Um, but through that, I know that the most high is still the most high and his son is still his word. His son was still sent out to do it, to do it, to do a work that it did. And it, and it did that it was what it was supposed to do and went back to the father as seen in Isaiah 55. So I want us to take a look at some of these, um, comparisons that people make. And one of the things that I, you know, I, I like, um, I don't even know the name of this. What is this? This site, uh, it was on Richard Dawkins, a website from uh, Richard Dawkins. Uh, and this is, it's an atheist person that's saying, you know, you know, I've seen all of these Horace and Jesus comparisons. And with these Horace and Jesus comparisons, this is what everyone, these were the, the things that, that pretty much everybody was saying were the comparisons. But what he said was, when he tried to search for the real evidence of this, and this is him as an atheist, he said he couldn't find it. He couldn't find anything. Um, he said, although it's well done, sounds very reasonable in, in the claims, saying that basically Jesus is a copy of Horus and all of this other stuff. He said that when he went and researched it all, um, he could not find actual evidence of this. Um, so he was trying to get somebody to help him out with it. And he listed the things that every, everyone was proclaiming that he was, that he was coming across and researching and pulling up. But once he, it's the same, and the reason why I'm saying this is because I did the same thing. He went back as I did and studied and read those scriptures for, not the scriptures, those stories for himself. And he, like me, could not find actual evidence of what they were proclaiming. So they were saying that Horus supposedly was conceived by a virgin mother named Mary, had a stepfather named Seb or Joseph, was born in a cave, his birth announced by an angel, heralded by a star and attended by shepherds, attended a special rite of passage at the age of 12, and there's no data on the child from the age of 12 to 30, um, was baptized in a river at the age of 30, his baptizer was later beheaded, had 12 disciples, performed miracles, exercised demons, raised someone from the dead, walked on water, was called uh, Lusa, the ever-becoming son and the holy child, delivered a sermon on the mount, quote-unquote, and his followers recounted his sayings, was transfigured on the mount, was crucified between two thieves, buried uh, for three days in a tomb, was resurrected, called the way, the truth, the light, Messiah, God's anointed son, son of man, good shepherd, lamb of God, word made flesh, word of truth, the Christ or anointed one, was the fisher and was associated with the fish, lamb, and lion, came to fulfill the law and was supposed to reign a thousand years. And he said, if they're all true, then that would be devastating for Christianity. He, you know, he said, but he has yet to find, he said he really needs something more than repeated claims because at the end of the day, that was all 
that either him or I found. I agree with this atheist. I did not find anything except repeated claims. And then on top of that, I found that a lot of the work was regurgitated from, I can't remember the guy's name, starts with the G, I should have had it. With me, oh, you know what? Matter of fact, this guy is probably going to say it in this article. I haven't gone all the way through it, <laughs> but I figured I would just go and pull from it. This guy is talking about um, Bill Maher when he did the religious movie. And he says that, let me see here. He breaks down the things that that is mentioned in this movie, which is pretty much a lot of the stuff that the guy is saying um, that I just read to you. And so he says here, Horus is the son, because here, and I want to get into this because, um, just a little bit, because a lot of times what we do, um, there's this temptation, especially as black people, to go back to Egypt. To literally go to that place, and this isn't to condemn Egypt. That there, there are believers everywhere in Christ Jesus. There are believers in Palestine, believers in Syria, believers in Israel. There are believers all up and down through there. It is not my place to condemn any place or anybody. It is amazing everything that has been accomplished and still stands in Egypt. Beautiful stuff. Okay. So what I'm talking about is this temptation to go and like, why would you forget about a God who was living and active in your life just to turn around and get mesmerized by the ego of an ancient time? Which really, the Most High is way more ancient than even any of that. And the, and the Bible's teachings are even more ancient than that. But that's to be, you know, people argue and debate that all the time. And, and, and that's understandable also. So anyhow, he goes on and just does a breakdown, right, um, of what the religious claims are. And so you'll see what these claims are as I'm going through them. He says, Horus is the son of God, Osiris, born to a virgin mother. The mother of Horus was believed to be the goddess Isis. Her husband, the god Osiris, was killed by his enemy Seth, the god of the desert, and later dismembered. Isis managed to retrieve all of Osiris's body parts except for his phallus, which was thrown into the Nile and eaten by catfish. I'm not making this up. This is what he's saying. Isis used her goddess powers to temporarily resurrect Osiris and fashion a golden phallus. She was then impregnated and Horus was conceived. However, this story may be classified. It is not a virgin birth. So right there, there is no virgin there giving birth. Not to mention, um, um, she, uh, her husband, it was her husband, Osiris. So she already was not a virgin by the time she was conceiving. Um, so, you know, I, it's just really interesting to me that even in that, like 
some of these claims are just regurgitated so much that they're not even tested because people don't want to believe. They're typically regurgitated by people who are anti-Christ, who are anti-God or anti-Bible or anti-church. And so they regurgitate these things because it seems empowering to them to be able to just throw something out there because they know most people, most Christians don't look this stuff up. Most Christians aren't even aware because they're like, Christians are in their little bubbles. And it's true. <laughs> we will claim God and Jesus in word and pick up our little books and have our little traditional stuff. But not, not really know um, how to really address these things. And so... People, you know, a lot of believers are left with their mouths open or whatever, or I just believe because I believe, <laughs> you know, whatever, whatever floats your boat. But there are many people who take that and say, hmm, what I believe, what I believed all this time was a lie. Because they never actually researched theology. They never researched. Yeah. So then they, they feel re uh, not rejected. They feel deceived by the church and everybody else in their so-called Christian community. But what do they do? They don't go and study theology. They don't go harder in Christ to see, okay, father, what do I need to learn? What do you want me to learn now? How do I, how do, okay, this is a new ministry, uh, ministering opportunity that, that you're giving me. How do I have an understanding and a knowledge on this that glorifies you? But instead, what they begin to do is listen to the non-believer in the first place. They instantly say, oh my gosh, I'm so disappointed in the church. Nobody told me these things. How come nobody ever told me this? And then they go over and they, re they, re they go head deep, knee deep, excuse me, just all the way in, 10 toes down. They go in researching the lie because they feel like the church has not offered what they actually should have so-called had, especially if you're a black person, because then the whole white man and oppression and all of that gets thrown into the seduction of how you going to believe that little voice that says, how you going to believe your oppressor's God? How does oppressor and God even go together? Because God is a God of freedom and deliverance. And so the people who were oppressing were in sin. So in other words, how do you take on the sinner's belief of believing that they're the ones that created that faith when they hadn't? I'm, I'm trying not to get all off topic. Next topic uh, or next, next uh, false belief. He was baptized in a river by Anup, by Anup, the baptizer who was later beheaded. There is no character named Anup the Baptizer in ancient Egyptian mythology. This is a concoction of a 19th century poet, uh, English poet, an amateur Egyptologist. Oh, that's who this was, Gerald Massey. That's his name. I knew it started with a G. Gerald Massey, he talks about him. So um, Massey, and a lot of stuff came, I want to say either from Massey's book or from somebody that he messed with or that he got his info from, but his stuff was made up. And it was made to um, to adapt against the Christian faith. So it's crazy. So, you know, I mean, I'm, and I'm not saying that it comes from a from a false place, because I do believe 
that because you had the Israelites, you did have the Israelites and the, um, and the Egyptians, um, the, these Hamite nations, they did congregate a lot together. They lived side by side with each other. Their ways they did. God was constantly having to check them about that. But even the word says that that's nothing new. So the world would try to say, oh, they just stole that idea from da, 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 da. No, even the Lord checks them. So you think they would actually even put that in there? The, the Lord checks them about it. But anyhow, he says, um, um, this is a concoction of the 19, 19th century English poet and amateur Egyptologist by the name of Gerald Massey. Massey is the author of several books on the subject of Egyptology. However, professional Egyptologists have largely ignored his work. In fact, his writing is held in such low regard in archaeological circles that it's difficult to find ref, uh, references to him in reputable modern publications. Uh, let's see here. So in the book, Christ in Egypt, uh, the Horus Jesus connection, um, let's see author DM Murdoch drawing heavily from the Gerald Massey, excuse me, drawing. Yep. See, that was Gerald Massey drawing heavily from Gerald Massey identifies Anup the baptizer as the Egyptian God Anubis. Murdoch then attempts to illustrate parallels between Anubis and John the Baptist. So talk about far stretches, you guys. And that is exactly what I was finding when I read these stories. And I was just like, wait a minute. First off, you're lucky if you could even get original, actual stories that that line up like all of them. You'll find various interpretations or various um uh, uh, just various interpretations of some of the same stories. But I don't mean that in the sense of, oh, like, I mean, it's like total like this dude here, like just saying, turning John the Baptist into Anubis, like, come on, man. And in any of you who know John the Baptist in the story, you know, good and well that this has nothing to do with Anubis. John the Baptist and Anubis have no comparison. Anyway, some evidence. And, and of course, um, you know, the dude was never baptized. You know, it's, it's just horse was never baptized by this guy unless it's in the story of Gerald Massey. But we want facts, though. So some evidence exists in Egyptian tomb paintings and sculptures to support the idea that a ritual washing was done during the coronation of pharaohs. But it's always depicted as having been done by the gods. This indicates that it may have been understood as a spiritual event likely never have. Um, excuse me, that likely never happened in actual reality. So you could look at that as maybe a baptism or an, or an anointing of a pharaoh. But this is a very common thing in any type of, uh, of culture. So it's not that it's anything new. It's the way that they're trying to connect these pieces. It's a straw man's theory. So anyhow, um, going on. <clears throat> Oh, and, and, and by the way, that uh, there was no washing by Anubis of Horus. So I know I said that, but he reiterates that again. There was no ever found any depiction, not one of a ritual washing or anything by Anubis, you know, over Horus. So let's just throw that one out there again. Anyway, next false claim. Like Jesus, Horus was tempted while alone in the desert. 
The companion guide to the film, Zeitgeist, outlines the basis for this claim by, by explaining, um, quote unquote, as does Satan with Jesus, Set, aka Seth, attempts to kill Horus. Set is the god of the desert who battles Horus while Jesus is tempted in the desert by Satan. Excuse me. Um, doing battle with the so-called, uh, quote unquote, God of the desert is not the same as being tempted while alone in the desert. And according to the gospel accounts, Satan did not attempt to kill Jesus there. Now, it's it's interesting to me because. Um, Oh, let me finish reading. The relationship between Horus and Seth in the ancient Egyptian religion was quite different than the relationship between Jesus and Satan. While Seth and Horus were often at odds with each other, it was believed that their reconciliation was what allowed the pharaohs to rule over a unified country. It was believed that the pharaoh was a Horus reconciled to Seth or a gentleman in whom the spirit of disorder had been integrated. And that was on the Oxford's Guide of Egyptian Mythology. Um, in stark contrast, there is never, never any reconciliation between Jesus and Satan in Scripture. Um, <clears throat> and one thing that is interesting is is that um, when you when you look at it's you, again, they're trying to connect dots that aren't really there and things that happen. In other situations and trying to say, okay, um, this is special um, to Jesus and Horus. And it's really not. Um, These things aren't even specifically highlighted in the scriptures. They just discuss the things that happen. Like you don't see um, um, Jesus and Satan battling it out. You know what I mean? When he's there, when he's in the desert, when he's being uh, tempted, he was being tempted. If anything, there was a battle going on so-called within Christ. I've heard that where people would say that because it's like, you know, go ahead and show who you are, show your stuff. You know what I mean? Because surely the angels are going, they going to catch you. They got you. If you throw yourself off the cliff, you know, all of these different things. But, but it's, it's, there's, there was never any reconciliation between Jesus and Satan. And that was one of the biggest things that they were trying to say here. And it just goes to show how these people really don't know the scripture. They just see this idea of good versus evil. And they, and they try to say and connect that to Egyptian mythology here. And it's just horrible. Um, healed the sick, the blind, cast out demons and walked on water saying that Horus did all that. The Metternich Stella, a monument from the 4th century BC, tells a story in which Horus is poisoned by Seth and was brought back to life by the god Thoth at the request of his mother Isis. The ancient Egyptians used the spell described on this monument to cure people. It was believed that the spirit of Horus would would dwell within the sick and that they would be cured in the same way he was. The spiritual indwelling is a far cry from the physical healing ministry of Christ. Horus did not travel the countryside laying his hands on, on the sick and restoring them to health. It was basically like, here goes some uh, medicine, pick it up from the pharmacy. If you can get it, you can get it. I don't see that it's really any different from anybody who's trying to under... I don't see that it's any... (laughs) It's just funny to me. Again... One of the things that you're going to find in, in a lot of these ancient ancient um, accounts and stories is 
normal human acts in nature and beliefs. Like it's going to be stuff about water. It's going to be stuff about, you know, the weather. It's going to be stuff about, you know, food. It's going to be certain things. It's going to be stuff about the bigger unknown things. So, so it's, you know, spiritual. It's, it's because God naturally put something in us, a knowing already. He said of eternity. He said, he's already put bound eternity in our hearts. So whether we're saved or not, there are certain things he's already given man a conscience and, and, and we have fears in, in these things that we live in. So this, especially in ancient times, these basic things, these basic elements were, were vital to every culture. Anyhow, I'm going to keep on going. He raised Asar from the dead. Asar translates to Lazarus. The name Osiris is a Greek transliteration of the Egyptian name Asar. As I mentioned earlier, Osiris is the father of Horus. And according to the myth, he was killed by Seth and briefly brought back to life by Isis in order to conceive Horus. Remember, she was the um, uh, definitely not the virgin <laughs> like they were trying to claim. Anyway. In order to conceive Horus, it was not Horus who raised Asar from the dead. It was his mother. So it was, it was, again, there's no connection here. Um, the name Lazarus is actually derived from the Hebrew word Eleazar, meaning God has helped. Um, this name was common among the Jews of Jesus, um, of Jesus's time. In fact, two figures in the New Testament bear this name. Um, so, oh yeah, he also had 12 disciples, Horus, right? Okay. Yeah. Again, this claim, which is false, um, finds its origin in the work of Gerald Massey again, um, which points to a mural depicting the 12 who reap the harvest. But Horus does not appear in the mural. In the various Horus myths, there are indications of four quote unquote sons of Horus or six semi-gods who followed him. And at times there were various numbers of human followers, but um, they never add up to 12. <coughs> only Massey arrives at this number and he does so only by referencing the mural with no Horus on it. Um, yes, Horus was crucified first. In many of the books on and on the websites that attempt to make this connection, it is often pointed out that there are ancient several ancient depictions of Horus standing with his arms spread in cruciform. Um, one can only answer this with a heartfelt, so what? <laughs> a depiction of a person standing with their arms spread out isn't unusual, nor is it evidence uh, that the story of a crucified savior predates that of Jesus. Um, a lot of people even look at the Ankh and say, oh, you know, the Ankh, is is a uh, is a predating of of the of the cross. I mean, the cross itself is not original. I don't even wear it. Like you'll never find me wearing a cross. Like a, the cross was never like everybody has had the cross. So many pagan religions have had the cross. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So like it's so crazy to me that they are basing again trying to because the, there is nothing. To say that someone dies on a tree and then to say that Horus was now crucified, that language is completely different. That is totally different language and that's how you know it was thrown in there to try to create 
a connection that just does not exist. Um, again, that is basing things, that is basing ancient Egyptology to modern ideas of Christianity from atheists. Um, anyway, um, and so, and, and after uh, three days, oh, I'm sorry, I don't know if I finished. Um, we do have, he says, we do have extensive evidence from extra uh, biblical sources that the Romans around the time of Christ practiced crucifixion as a form of capital punishment. Not only that, but we have in the Bible actual eyewitness accounts of Jesus's crucifixions. Um, and, and on the other hand, there is no historical evidence at all to suggest that the ancient Egyptians made use of this type of punishment, which is true. Um, after three days, two women uh, announced Horus, the savior of humanity, had been resurrected. Um, as he explained before, the story of the child Horus dying and being brought back to life is described on the Metternich Stella, which in no way resembles the sacrificial death of Jesus. First off, well, he's saying this here. <laughs> uh, Christ did not die as a child only to be brought back to life because his, his grieving mother went to the animal-headed god of magic. Um, the mythology surrounding Horus is closely tied with the pharaohs because they were believed to be Horus in life and Osiris in death. With the succession of pharaohs over the centuries came new variations on the myth. Sometimes Horus was believed to be the god of the sky and at other times he was believed to be the god of war, other times both. But he was never described as a quote-unquote savior of humanity. Let me see here. So, um, lastly, if you do an internet search, was what he's saying <clears throat> on the subject, you'll come across lists supposedly of parallels between Jesus and Horace that are much longer than Bill Maher's filmic litany. Um, and he says what they all have in common is that they don't cite their sources. And that is something that I wanted to bring up because, um, very often I have asked people to cite their sources and no one has ever done so. Um, Another thing that I wanted to bring up is that, that there are varying, um, there are varying, um, stories that are create other creation stories, other creation myths. <clears throat> and oftentimes people think that they've taken these stories from like the Enuma Elish or the, um, Gilgamesh epic, and they have adapted them to their own to you know for the for the genesis stories and and things like that now what's interesting because i personally i i honestly when i went back and i read those stories you can find them online you're able to pull up you can get the books um but you can find so many different comparisons and I find it interesting that they compare everything to the Bible as, as if the Bible is just the standard. Like they don't do anything like this with the Quran. They don't do anything like that with uh, with the Enuma Elish or the Gil. They, they don't hold any of the other creation stories against any other creation story. And it's because you know why it's because they are blatantly false. There is nothing historically accurate about any of it. But yet and still, when we read the scriptures, we read, we can go to first and second Chronicles, first and second Kings. We could read about the Assyrians and the, the, the different attacks. We could actually see the, uh, the, the, the battles, um, 
you know, going on at the British Museum. <laughs> when you see the uh, the Lakish or or the Lahish uh, relief um, walls, and you see the actual Jews, and you see the Assyrians, and you see uh, these different. Um, gosh, it's so. You guys actually can go. Matter of fact, in my podcast listed, you can actually go and find the. Ar- I have a I have a couple of podcasts on the archaeological finds that actually have aligned with scripture that were proven um, in the, by the scriptures. They found this stuff in archaeology and in those places, places, those locations that they had to dig to find, that they dug and found these places, Old Testament and New Testament, when they have had to find these places, not just say, oh yeah, it's over there. No, no, no. Once they dug and found proof of these places, Bethlehem, all these different places, you... Are, you, you can't sit back and say, oh yeah, the Enuma Elish and the Gilgamesh epic and, um, or the epic of Gilgamesh, excuse me, or, uh, uh, you know, all of these other stories. There are so many. There are Indian stories. There are so many different creation stories. It's expected. But what I do find interesting is that when you do see of a massive flood everywhere, when the Bible does say there was a flood, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? When people themselves say that they came up out of that or that this happened. But even then, I don't even take that as proof of the biblical flood, to be honest with you. Because to me, it's just showing that these are the concerns of the everyday people in ancient times. You know what I mean? Like these are their crops at stake. These are their homes at stake. These are their children at stake. They had no methods of flying and getting away from tragedy. So when I see these things, sometimes it just boils down to plain common sense. Yes, there's going to be a creation story. Why? Because God has already said eternity eternity into the hearts of man. And we want to know where did we come from and why? Who made us? Where did where did this happen? That's why so many of us, you know, will worship the womb of the woman. You know what I mean? As if everything starts from there. And we try to make God into man, which is what you see like being done, but not in a way of salvation. It is done oftentimes in a way of uh, lifting self. And it's funny because even though in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. (laughs) Y'all look that up in John 1. I actually have to cut it short. This is Essence and you are watching, uh, excuse me, and you've been listening to Wisdom in Red where we are living life through the words and spirit of Christ. You guys, I just want you guys to know this. The Lord lowered himself for us because <laughs> I was about to just go down a whole little rabbit hole in, in the book of John. But the Lord has humbled himself for us. Whereas in all these other stories, they are lifting up themselves, becoming gods or this and this and that. But the Lord did the opposite for us to be salvation for us and to actually fulfill the word that was sent out by the most high as the work and will of the most high anyway, but that can turn into a whole other conversation. So I just hope that this gave you guys something to think about, um, something to go back and study for yourselves that you're not easily swayed. Remember Peter said we didn't come up with cleverly devised myths and stories and fables. We didn't come up with that stuff. Um, that we're actually up here dying for. 
So don't just be so easily tempted by your own itching ears or your own doubts or your own lack of confidence in the word or thinking that you've just been bamboozled. Yes, it's the job. It's the devil's job to bamboozle. Just have questions for other people then. You know, a lot of times you'll find that they don't even have answers. They're so busy trying to talk you about your faith in the spirit that they're not even aware of that they really don't have the answers themselves. So what option are they really giving you? When they're trying to lure you away from Jesus Christ, your salvation. Anyway, y'all, this is Essence again. Thank you for riding this wave because it's 50 minutes. <laughs> so y'all have an amazing day. Talk to you next time.